is The Jolt with Larry Flick on Sirius XM OutQ. That is brand new music by Jewel. So good to hear her voice. Always good to hear her voice, but especially good to hear it on something brand new. I'm Larry Flick, and you're on Sirius XM OutQ. Jewel is here in studio looking as smashing as ever. How are you, darling? Hi. Are you good? I'm very well, thank you. Um, you have a lot going on. Brand new album. Yeah. Brand new book. Yeah. It's an interesting um, convergence of projects because having spent some time with the record, um, it feels more intimate and personal mm -hmm. than I've heard in the last couple of records, although your music is always very revealing. Mm -hmm. um, but this feels different, yeah. and I want to get into that with you. Um, and it seems like a, a, a good companion to the book. The book by Jewel is called Never Broken, Songs are only half the story. So uh, we should begin with the most obvious of questions. What is it about this moment in your life that made you feel so available in this new way? When my son was born, I looked into his eyes and realized I wasn't the woman I wanted him to know. Um, not Ooh. that I wasn't proud of who I was, but I think with time we become domesticated. And I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about um, parts of us that should remain raw and unfiltered. And I think with time, they just sort of get covered in the way things are done and going about our lives and getting busy. Uh, it's not, not some intentional thing, but I put parts of myself to sleep that I didn't realize until I saw my son. And I wanted to undo that. And it caused some really radical changes in my life. And did that all, I mean, did part of that mean? opting to be uh, a single mother as opposed to being partnered? It did, yeah. Um, I ended up getting a divorce, writing a book, and producing and writing a record all in the same year. My number one job was being a parent, making sure my son felt stable. Uh, my second job was making sure that my ex-husband and I were able to transition our relationship um, in a humane way that allowed my son to stay the center of it and feel secure. Because you don't get to get out of a relationship with a divorce. You actually you have a relationship forever. And so making sure you do that with dignity, hopefully, and, and grace so you can transition that. Yeah. So having uh, interviewed you a few times, having been following your story mm -hmm. over the many years, it has been many years that you've yeah. been making music now, <laughs> um, and, and, and reading a whole bunch of new things that I didn't know in this book, um, it's not unusual for you to occasionally blow up your life and start over, <laughs> is it? It's been a necessity. I don't enjoy doing it, um, but I do think one should face it with courage and, and try and make the best of it. As a creative person, I feel really thankful that a lot of my life has been about using my creativity to try and pick up the pieces, as it were. Uh, you know, I moved out at 15, and I knew statistically that girls like me end up in a ditch or on a pole or in an abusive relationship by 20. And I wanted to try and avoid being a statistic. And so I did kind of a radical thing, which was move out when I was 15. But my dad was abusive, and it was sort of this question of, do I live in a cabin with you know, somebody who's mean to me, or do I just live in a cabin and pay my own rent? And so that's what I decided to do. And uh, I sort of set about on this scientific, uh, I don't know, quest to see if, you know, if it's nat nature versus nurture. And if I didn't like how I was nurtured, could I re-nurture? Could I re-nurture myself? 
if happiness wasn't taught in my home, could I learn it? Was it a learnable skill? And that set me on this path of writing to sort of keep track of how I was doing and to try and learn new skills. And so when people say, how did you go from moving out of 15 to being homeless to where you are today? There really is a process. And I wanted to share that process in the book because, you know, as Buddha says, I really don't believe happiness depends on who you are or what you have. It depends on what you think. And when you find yourself homeless and stripped of money, food, belongings, home, family, and all you have left are your thoughts. And I was agoraphobic and had a complete intense fear of of being stricken with illness if I left my car or my street corner. You have to get serious. You have to reprogram yourself. And that's a lot of what my life has been. And and the music for me has just been a soundtrack to that process. What's uh, fascinating uh, about your story and and you, in what you just said, uh, unearthed several things in my brain, um, the first of which is how um, interesting it is to be homeless and agoraphobic at the same time mm-hmm. because I, I, I've had battles with agoraphobia mm. in my past and usually it comes from the comfort and mm-hmm. safety of home mm-hmm. and did it ever confound you that you were experiencing this without a home? For me agoraphobia wasn't about the safety of home it was about the complete unsafety of everywhere else except somewhere you deem safe mm. you know I guess it's I don't know if it'd be a type of OCD but it, in a weird way it sort of feels like that it's yeah. trying to find safety and security uh, through control and where did you or when did you discover that there was something to do something to say that kept you alive because in reading the book mm-hmm. and I already believed this before I read the book, um, and and I feel it even more so listening to the new record. Although I, again, I've had this feeling about you for a while, which is when we are put in a position that normally breaks people, and we find a way to not break. It's because somewhere inside, some part of our consciousness knows that there's something to do. Mm that there's a mission? I don't know. Um, I can't really say I ever felt like um, special. I never really felt like I had a mission, you know, as a young kid. It's just whenever I was faced with extreme distress, I wanted to thrive and I wanted to be happy. Um, And that has always pushed me and motivated me. So is that just a personality trait then, do you think? Or because to me, that sounds like a mission. Mm. That sounds like... um, uh, maybe a reticence to say, I knew I was special because that sounds like a jerky thing to say, <laughs> um, even though it's a fair thing to say. Um, do you think then it's just a personality trait? Some of us are tougher than others? I think there was something that rubbed off on me somewhere that made me feel capable for some reason when push came to shove. Mm. And I credit a lot of that to Alaska, quite frankly. You know, I was raised without a lot of confidence, without a lot of uh, things that most kids should get, you know, no stability. I was raised in a violent household, uh, moved around 20 different homes, and I can't tell you how many years, um, moving out at a young age, singing in bars, lots of things that shouldn't go right. It doesn't lend to a woman's self-confidence. But the women in Alaska were incredibly capable. I was raised around these pioneer women that built their own houses and shoed their own horses and trained their own horses and were incredibly can-do women. And I think that pioneer spirit 
was just integral to how I was raised. It was it permeated my being. So that when push came to shove, I decided I'll live on my own. I can do this. I'm capable. I'll figure it out. And I think, you know, not being raised with a sex in my mind where women were this weaker sex and men were the stronger sex. I wasn't raised with that in in the north where I'm from. And I think that did me a tremendous service. So if you had one thing going for you, that was a good thing to have going for you. And I had a lot of pride and I don't know why. But when people would try and take advantage of me, for some reason, I would stand up for myself. And I can't exactly tell you why that is, except there was always that spirit in me. Interesting. That's Jewel joining us here on Sirius XM. Our cue, I'm Larry Fleck. The book is called Never Broken. Um, So much of your writing previously has been in prose whether it be in songs or poems. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not your first published work, but it's your first published work. Long form, yeah. In narrative, traditional narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, that requires, in some ways, a more complex writing and in other ways of less, mm-hmm. a more naked uh, writing. Did that make you uncomfortable ever? I am a fan of literature, and so I was quite reluctant to have my first long-form work published. It it felt a little bit sacrilege, and I wasn't sure how I would do at it. Uh, My training as a writer has been to have a lot of freight on very few words, um, to try and have a lot of meaning with the economy of phrase. And so writing this much made me uneasy. I kept thinking, I'm not doing well. I'm saying too much. This must mean I'm a bad writer. But you actually have to say some things when you're trying to tell this long of a story and get into it. And so for me, it was learning to move time, allow myself to be historic and move time and how to find a pace that wasn't boring and wouldn't dull people. Uh, Then learning where to drop in with using my more lyrical style of writing to really drop in and make a moment um, fuller and and really portray some emotion and then pick up time again. Uh, And then how to do several story arcs. It was a real learning curve for me, but I enjoyed it immensely. I didn't know if I ever had the patience to do the style of writing, but I enjoyed it. It's it's extremely um, satisfying Good. a read, um, and it's funny because you know when you've been doing what I do for as long as I've been doing it, the first thing you do is you hold the book practically upside down to look for a ghostwriter's name. There is none. <laughs> it's a big book. It's a meaty book. It's not a uh, fifteen point print over two hundred pages. It's a substantial book of almost four hundred pages of great um, vulnerable writing. Um, what did it feel like? What it, even even just the 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 the, uh, the graphics, the artwork, it looks like a piece of literature as opposed to a tabloid piece. Do you know what I mean? Thank you. Um, what does it feel like? I'm holding your book in my hand. What does that look like to you? Because it's I, different than holding your record. It is. Um, it's big. <laughs> a big heavy book, Jewel. It was a. I'm proud. Um, I don't say that very often. Um, and it's not that I thought I wrote a, a perfect piece of, of writing, but... Uh, it's a beautiful piece. In, as you as you read in the book, I, uh, I missed a lot of my career. Um, I was so busy, embroiled in an intense relationship with my mom where I really felt I could never be proud and own anything that I did because it had to be part of a group. Um, I was told that I was the tip of an iceberg and that I was only the face point and that the deeper meaning was beneath and that that was somebody else's work. Uh, I had a crazy, crazy upbringing, and I just now am coming out on the other side of it um, because I'm on the other side of a lot of string of events that led me to now. 
And so it feels good. It feels good to be free. It feels good to do my own work and to be able to feel a little proud. Um, how would you characterize your relationship with your biological family other than your, your son? Uh, my dad and I have a great relationship. Um, something I really wanted to do in the book was talk about abuse and try and have a conversation about it that wasn't shaming, wasn't angry, wasn't bitter, so that we could actually have a conversation. A lot of people don't talk about what happens in their families, or when they do talk about it, they're so hurt and devastated that it's hard to see the humanity in the entire process. Uh, my dad was abused as a child, and he became abusive as a father. And as I look at what he endured as a child, and I look at the skill set he had heading into parenthood, he was set up to fail. And in the book, I talk about something that I call emotional English. Um, we're all taught an emotional language. And even if you hate that language, let's say it's actually English, you'd say, I hate English. English hurt me. When I grew up, I never want to speak English. But unless you learn Spanish, you're going to speak English. Um, but there's no school to learn a new emotional language, really. Mm. And so you have abused children growing up to be abusive parents. And it really is just a tragedy. It's victims in a cycle of abuse. Um, and so my dad and I had an abusive relationship. I moved out at 15, cut all ties, never thought I would really probably talk to him again. But my dad did a lot of work on himself, and it was really extraordinary. My dad uh, was told he was loved by his father only on his father's deathbed. And it changed his life. And it caused my dad to change his life at a much younger age. And I was able to change it even at a much younger age. And so I wanted to have that debate in a human way where I'm not villainizing my father. I have no. a lot of compassion for him. No. At the same time, it doesn't mean what happened to me was ideal, but it's about how we heal and having that discussion. It's um, It was the story of uh, of you and your father that I found most compelling because um, I cut ties with my family. Uh, it's going on 20 years now. Mm. And I wasn't abused, but I, it was a... It was a uh, violent alcoholic family, mm -hmm. and I was. That's the, an abuse. <laughs> yeah, it is an abuse. Yeah. But I, and I was the the Superman mm -hmm. from yeah, 10. the hero child. Yeah, yeah, I was the one who saved everybody, including mm -hmm. my three sisters, my mother, mm -hmm. and we moved a lot. And there was a lot of shame and drama yeah. and damage, and and I don't foresee the same ending. Mm. Um, and so it was interesting and a bit alien to read about mm. what happened with you and your father. It was heartening to see that someone could have that that turnover it made me a bit sad because it i further believed that it's not going to happen for mm -hmm. me um but what i'm curious to to know and it's the thing that people never understand when i talk about my story is do you ever feel like people understood why you had to at least for a time cut the ties I never really thought about if people understood. Um, I think most people that don't grow up in that type of household probably have a hard time relating, but uh, that's good. They shouldn't. You know, it should be unthinkable to cut yeah. ties with your family. Yeah. And if somebody's draw driven to do it, it, it takes an extreme circumstance usually did, to make you do that. Did you feel ostracized because of it? I didn't particularly. Um, I still talked to my father. You know, I saw him around town. You know, it wasn't sort of like, he just wasn't somebody I relied on. Uh, mm. So when I became homeless, I don't think I ever told him. Um, and he told me later that was a real shameful thing for him as people were like, oh, it's how could you let your daughter be homeless? And he goes, I didn't, he didn't know. And he was own, his own fear of like checking in. He felt like such a failure as a father that he couldn't even face talking to me. 
Um, and so your own shames end up trapping you and isolating you. Mm. Um, but as he worked on himself, and it wasn't just saying, Jewel, I'm sorry. It was actually showing me changes that allowed us to have a relationship again. And he's a great granddad and comes to see my son. And we have a good, very honest relationship. Probably not what most parent-daughter relationships are, I guess. But for us, it's honest and it's authentic. And if he has a problem, he tells me. And if I have a problem, I tell him. And it works. So there's something about this new record that's also uh, quite compelling and interesting. You um, made the transition to country music uh, a number of years ago. Um, it was always very convincing. I believed it. Mm-hmm. I still believe it. And I still love those records, those early records. But this record feels like, I don't want to say your most honest record because that discounts everything else. But it feels I hear the link between the artist I first met mm-hmm. all those years ago and the artist you are now. Um, when you were talking about, um, I don't think you used the word complacency, but the things that you did because they were the things that you were meant to do mm-hmm. as opposed to necessarily what your heart was telling you. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like you've had to make that kind of voyage musically? in the last, say, 10 or so years? I was lucky to be mentored by, you know, Bob Dylan and Neil Young, and they always said you need to follow your muse wherever that goes. And they always gave me a lot of courage to take risks musically. To me, the worst crime would have been, the worst death to me creatively would have been stagnation, doing the same thing over and over. I needed to move and explore um, and write different styles uh, and explore different aspects of my personality. You do learn a lot about the business that can be helpful, but in a lot of ways, it isn't helpful either. So when you get a bit clever and you learn, God, if I want to get played on the radio and pop has turned into this, I don't fit anywhere. I fit on country radio. Those are good, smart decisions, and I believe in those decisions. Um, and then you say, this is a framework. How do I exist authentically within a framework? Mm. So I felt like those works are all very authentic. They're very me. They're very honest. I'm writing everything. Uh, I'm the one that decided to make those hard decisions and those hard moves against everybody's advice of like, dear God, don't go pop. Oh God, dear God, don't now go somewhere else. And dear God, oh my God, she's going somewhere else again. I did it because I believed in it. And those were hard decisions and I always have to work quite hard to support them. Um, And I think they kept me alive. But at the same time, I think whether you look at my job, anybody's job as a journalist, any career, you can look with time. You learn the rules. You learn how to excel within those rules. And then you learn, it's It's dulled me. I'm dull. I feel domesticated. And that's the only way I really know how to describe it. Mm -hmm. I don't feel that my earlier work was inauthentic. And yet, this was an archaeological dig back to my most essential self. I got to have a conversation with the 18-year-old me and say, where's that fire? And it's in you, but it's got covered up and a little safe. And I wanted this record, the reason I had no producer, the reason I had no label, I wanted nothing influencing me. And I wanted to, I was in this process of my entire life, like unearthing my entire life, going through a divorce and um, saying, who am I as a woman? What do I want to stand for? And can I produce a record that's just raw and guttural and feels like there's a line from my vein directly to your vein? And if you listen to that record, I want you to have such a strong visceral reaction that you get goosebumps and it feels chilling. And that's what I set out to do and hopefully accomplished. Very much so. Very, very much so. It's Jewel joining us here on Sirius XMLQ, I'm Larry Flick. Um, I'm fascinated by how the record feels uh, wise, a bit older, but not particularly bitter. How? One of the things I, I wrestle with, having spent over 30 years in and around 
the same business as you um, is as much as I love it and I love it more and more every day, that's how much I hate it mm-hmm. more and more every day <laughs> because the politics kill the art. Mm-hmm. How did that not embitter you? Because we, you, I, you and I have seen similar things, even mm-hmm. though our, our paths are very different. The industry is the same. Yeah. And it's as 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 necessary as it is to getting your art out there pretty fucked up it is a hard business it's a hard business to stay alive in yeah. as, a, as an artist as a creative human as somebody's wanting to think and grow and expand for me it's remembering that the fan base my fans have an appetite for real and the industry forgets that sometimes and so uh it doesn't always mean that they're right for me it's been figuring out how do i define success really like jewel what do you want out of this like when i made this record i had to be willing to never be played on radio I know I probably didn't have a radio single. I know I wasn't making anything up-tempo. I knew the record I was making fell between all the genres, so it wouldn't make it on country radio, and it wouldn't get on pop radio, and it wouldn't get on alternative radio, most likely. I was making an incredibly uncommercial record. I had taken five years off from the business, which is 50 lifetimes in our business. And are you willing to do that and pay the price, so to speak, of what most people call success? to make something that you think is a success, which for me is an honest piece of art that took a risk and said exactly who the hell I was at that moment. And for me, the answer was yes, but it means being willing to walk away from it all. In a weird way, it means being willing to say, ooh, Jewel's record didn't debut number one. Oh, Jewel didn't have, I didn't have the backing of a big label. I'm on an indie label after five years of being gone. It's like the worst career decision you can make. (laughs) But it's, for me, my goal, I hope, is to be a great singer-songwriter and to do this 40 years. I want to be looked at as one of the greats. And I may not pull that off. That's up to me to do great work, Yeah, which is no guarantee. It means I have to stay in the fight. But that's what this is for me. This record is staying in the fight and saying I care more about being an artist and a singer-songwriter. That's my idea of success. That's something that can only be weighed within time. And it doesn't get to be judged right now. So uh, it's so interesting to hear you say that because uh, just uh, – Yesterday, I was having a conversation with another artist, um, and we were talking about exactly this, which is the point where you realize that there's a difference between fame and being respected, mm-hmm. and the point where you make the decision which is really more important to you. And I would even just refine that a little bit, because you can't guess how you'll be respected. And I think that's a that's chasing fame in a different way, if you're mm. looking for respect. But just doing your best work. Doing your best work is different. Yeah. That I think you can do. Like if you can do your best work, however that falls, whether people are get it or not, whether it's on deaf ears, whether it's not realized till you're dead, who Good. knows? Uh, all you can do is your best work. Well, you are doing your best work. Congratulations. Congratulations indeed. Jules' new book is called Never Broken. And um, the title of the new album is? Picking up the pieces. And with the book, I actually in the back did these 20 takeaways of these very pivotal changes in my thinking, and I'm developing a website out of them uh, that'll take each of these 20 things. And I'm, I'm, I made these really simple exercises that I did to help retrain myself uh, over my life. And so I put them all together, and I'll be making a website out of it because I really want people to know that happiness, you don't have to have the amount of money and a house and everything else. You can actually be the architect of your life at any time you choose. Very inspiring indeed. Well, we're going to listen to another song from Picking Up the Pieces right now here on Sirius XM Outcute. Mm-hmm. 